All right, who's ready for the word this morning? Awesome. Awesome. Well, I'm going to give you just a, a brief backstory as to how this message came about um, because I'm going to show you where it all started. And you've got to love it when your messages start on a brown paper napkin. See this right here? I was in a coffee shop uh, this week, and man, the Lord just really gripped me on something that I was reading during my personal time. And like every now and then you have those moments where you read something, whether it be the Bible or anything, it, it doesn't have to be the Bible, but specifically for me, this was the Bible, where I was reading in my personal time, and um, I read it, but then it wasn't until like a day or two later that I was sitting in the coffee shop, and it was just like God just, boom, brought me back to that verse, and then that's where the paper napkin came into play. So... Um, now it's translated to paper, so, but I, I just wanted, I wanted to bring this as a visual that napkins are, are multifaceted, that you don't necessarily have to just use them to wipe your face, but you can also use them to write stuff down. So, hey, it's awesome. And uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm excited about the Word today. I'm going to be talking about vision, but I'm not talking about it in the sense of vision as far as where this house is going, but I'm talking about vision and what we see. And uh, here's the definition of vision, according to the dictionary. It's the act or pattern. Now, this is one definition, so don't pigeonhole me to this. There's multiple definitions of the word vision. This is just the one that we're going to work from today. It is the act or power of anticipating that which will or may come to be. Now, this is because it's not a Christian dictionary, but let me just tell you, if you're a believer in Christ, that word may needs to hit the road, Okay. Because we need to read this as the act or power of anticipating that which will come to be. To have vision in our lives is to anticipate. That word anticipate comes with excitement because it's that word that says it's going to happen. The Bible talks about stuff as where you know people will perish for the lack of knowledge. Where there is no vision, people will perish. We have to have vision as individuals. And I believe that we fight a constant battle in the society that we live in because we are told not to have vision on our own. We are taught to just accept the vision that we are being told to accept. Is somebody with me this morning? And so, but as believers, we have this ability to lock into a vision that is beyond who we are as individuals. Because the vision that God has for your life is bigger than you. So it's going to take more than you. It's going to take something that's out of your natural ability. But my fear is, is that a lot of us, we live without vision. Maybe you're sitting here today and at one time you were like that. You you anticipated that things were going to happen because there was a vision that you had. But maybe because of a series of circumstances that has changed, and so now you're kind of just wandering through life without vision. You see, God has a vision for your life. Now I see some of y'all, y'all shaking your heads like, yes, yes, God does have a vision for my life. My question is, is do we really believe that? Do we really believe that the God of this universe knows us the way that His Bible and His Word tells us that He knows us, that He numbers the hairs on our head, that He knows our every move, He knows our every thought? Sometimes if we can just be real with one another, that's hard to comprehend. I mean, we can't even count the number of heads on our own kids' heads. So, I mean, when we think about the depth that God claims to know us as, and He does know us as, it's hard to fathom that at times. And I believe that there are times where we talk ourselves out of, or the enemy talks ourselves out of this idea that God has a vision for your life. But He does. I mean, just the famous verse in Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. And I don't know about you, but like when I read those words, there's some anticipation that begins to well up within me. Because this is a God who has said He has plans for me. Can I just be honest with you? 
I like for people to just tell me the plan. Like, just tell me the plan. You know, it's like my wife calls me when she's coming home. Hey, what are we having for dinner? I thought you had the plan. Just tell me the plan. I don't want to think about it. Just give me the plan. You know, and, and I think a lot of us can, can associate with that. We just want to know what the plan is. But see, God doesn't just give us the whole entire plan. He just gives us one step at a time most of the time. But that's where vision comes into play. Because what vision is, is it's the final picture of where you're going. You know, I've heard it said like this. It's like looking through a camera in the viewfinder. Now, think about it. If you've gone on a trip, you want to take a picture of something so that what? You can remember it, right? So think about it. It's like, man, if you look through the viewfinder of life, God wants to give you a picture that you can hold on to, that you can constantly go back to, that when life gets hard, when trouble comes, when, when, when relationships die, whenever anything happens, you can go back and you can look at that picture and say, for God has a plan for my life. Sometimes we've allowed that picture to fade. We might have even thrown that picture in the trash. Now here's a psalm that David wrote, and it's a famous one. You know that one where he talks about knitting us, that God knitted us together in our mother's womb. Well, I want to read to you, it won't be on the screen, but I'm going to read it to you. It's out of the Passion Translation, and it says this, starting in verse 13. You formed my innermost being, shaping my delicate inside and my intricate outside, and wove them all together in my mother's womb. I thank you, God, for making me so mysteriously complex. Everything you do is marvelously breathtaking. It simply amazes me to think about it. How thoroughly you know me, Lord. You even formed every bone in my body when you created me in the secret place. Carefully, skillfully shaping me from nothing to something. You saw who you created me to be before I became me. And that's powerful. Before I'd ever seen the light of day, the number of days you planned for me were already recorded in your book. You saw who you created me to be before I became me. Guess what? God's got a vision for your life. And it's been there before you were even born. He looked through His viewfinder and He saw you. And he saw a plan. He saw a purpose. He saw a destiny. He saw life change. He saw history makers. He saw you. God's got a vision for your life. So this past week in my personal time, I was reading Job. And God started to show me something. Good old Job. Just a small confession. When I first got my Bible, I thought it was Job. Until somebody said it was Job. It's like, okay, Job. I'm like, who names their son Job? You know? But it's Job. So anyways, Job, Job's this guy. And, 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 and you know, the thing about Job is that he's, a, he's an interesting guy in the fact that, like, even if you're not a, a, a believer, you've heard of Job. I mean, there's even a saying, give me the patience of Job, that, that even people who don't believe in God, they say all the time. It, it's it, it, it's, it's kind of crazy, but Job is famous regardless if you read God's Word or you don't. Whether you believe in God or you don't, Job, you know Job! Now think about that. I'm sure Job did not even give that a consideration when he was going through everything that he was going through. Like, everybody in history is going to know about me. But that's the case. I mean, just, we can stop there and just be amazed by that fact alone. That a guy like Job is now known. His story is told millions upon millions of times. So Job, Job's this guy who in Job 1.1, it says this, um, There once was a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz. He was blameless, a man of complete integrity, he feared God and stayed away from evil. Now, 
either you're going to accept my commentary that I'm about to say or you're not. But here's my commentary of Job 1.1. Job is a good guy. He's a good guy. He lives blameless. He doesn't really do anything wrong. He stays away from evil. He's a man of integrity. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever met a non-believer that meets those qualifications? Just a good guy. Stays away from evil. He's got, some, he's got integrity. I mean, now, it says he feared God. Okay? Now, I've met some really good people who would even go as far as saying, yeah, I know God. I believe in God, that there's a God. And, I, and, I, and, and when we talk about a fear here, there's an awareness. There's an allness. That's what it's talking about. I would say that there's, there are people out there that would say, I have an awareness that God is there. I have an all that there's a higher power that has created all of this. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they're a devoted follower of God or Christ. Now, you're probably thinking, whoa, Jack, Job was a believer in God. I, hey, look, I, I'm going to make my point here in just a little bit, but you've got to hang on with me, okay? I really believe Job was just a good old boy that did what he was supposed to do because he didn't want to be in trouble. He wanted to be liked by everybody, and he just wanted to get along. And guess what? He happened to be a wealthy guy at the same time. He had a lot of livestock. He had a lot of kids. It was a great life. He had it all. It's kind of like a lot of people that live in this area, so they seem to think. I got the nice house. I got the nice job. I got kids that are, that, are, that are making good grades. I mean, they're not terrible kids, but they're not like, you know, valedictorians either. But who cares? I just want them to stay out of trouble. It's just a good life. And we've got a, we got a nice dog. I really want a dog. Just saying. I just threw that in there because my wife won't let me get a dog. But one day, one day, one day I'm just going to show up with the dog. And then, and, then, and then we'll see where, no, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. So here's the thing. Here's this great guy, Job. Okay, and then we see this odd scene that, 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 that's kind of crazy when you think about it. it, it, it and, and we're not going to read through the whole thing. I'm just going to summarize here. Basically what happened is, is that Satan and his minions showed up in God's presence and said, Hey, we're here. And God says, What have you been doing? We've been roaming the earth. That's what we've been doing. And then God says, Boy, have you considered Job? Now, this begs a whole nother question and a whole nother sermon for another day. But that is quite an interesting scene to just try to picture in your head. Anyways, like I said, we can, that's a whole, that could be like a seminar in and of itself, but we won't go there. But anyhow, so, so he says, have you considered my servant Job? Okay. And then he says, well, Job's got, I mean, you just haven't, you haven't brought any trouble on his life. I mean, sure, he's not going to question you. He's not going to deny you. I mean, he, he's got it all. He's got it made. So God's like, okay, have at him. Just don't touch him. Right after that, it's like, man, everything just goes to pot. I mean, like, he's got one servant coming telling him, hey, your, your, your cows are dead. He's got another son, uh, servant coming saying that, guess what? Your sheep have been stolen. Don't, you know, quote me on this stuff. You can go back and read this in your own time. Then he's got, you know, another guy coming and telling him, hey, uh, your kids were all at the same house. Doing what? We don't know, but they were all at the same house, and the house came crashing down. They're all dead. Now, can you imagine? I mean, that happened like boom, boom, boom. It was like in one fell swoop, everything that he had was gone. And then that wasn't enough. His wife tells him, hey, why don't you just go ahead and curse God and die? Like, just do it. You know? Basically, like, just, just kill yourself. That's what she was telling him to do. Just kill yourself. Put yourself out of your misery. Because she was blaming him for everything that was happening because this whole time, everybody thinks that Job's got some kind of secret sin going on and that's the reason why all this stuff is happening. But remember, he's a blameless man. He, he kept him, he stayed away from evil. This was just God allowing something to happen in Job's life. Then he goes through a period where he gets attacked physically and he has boils and he goes through all of that. 
And then he's got friends that show up that want to tell him about his secret sin and just go at, her, go at him and all this kind of stuff. And look, I'm going to read two passages because I want you to see the state of mind that Job was in. Okay? In Job 29, verses 1 through 6, it says this. Job continued speaking. I longed for the years gone by when God took care of me. When he lit up the way before me and I walked safely through the darkness. When I was in my prime, God's friendship was felt in my home. The Almighty was still with me and my children were around me. My steps were awash in cream and the rocks gushed olive oil for me. Job was at this place like, man, God, can we please just go back to that moment where you took care of me? Where he actually cared about me. Where things were easy. Where it just happened. In the next chapter, he says this in verses 20 through 28. He says, I cry to you, O God, but you don't answer. I stand before you, but you don't even look. You have become cruel towards me. You use your power to persecute me. You throw me into the whirlwind and destroy me in the storm, and I know you are sending me to my death, the destination of all who live. Surely no one would turn against the needy when they cry for help in their trouble. Does this ever sound familiar? Maybe you've had a similar conversation yourself where you're like, God, where are you? I mean, do you not even care? I've cried out to you. Surely no one would turn against the needy when they cry for help. He goes, did I not weep for those in trouble? Was I not deeply grieved for the needy? Think about this. He's now putting up his resume to God saying, I didn't deserve this. Because I wept with those that needed to be wept with. And I, I, I grieved with those that were in need. So I looked for good. He continues in verse 26. So I looked for good, but evil came instead. I waited for light, but darkness fell. My heart is troubled and restless. Days of suffering torment me. I walk in gloom without sunlight. I stand in the public square and I cry for help. Man, oh man, oh man. You see, we're beginning to really find out really who Job was at his core because of what is going on. Now, granted, we justify how Job reacted because of everything that he lost. I mean, maybe some in here have gone through the pain of losing a child or even a family member that's been close to you before it was their time or whatever the case might be. And, 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 and those things are hard. I'm not trying to debate that. I mean, some of us might know what it feels like to lose everything. I don't know what that feels like. But it's funny how when we go through hard times and we go through trials, that who we really are comes to the surface. And that's what's happening with Job here. He gets to this place and he goes, God, where are you? Now think about this for a minute. His... He, he, the way that he, he judges whether or not God is with him or not is how much God's providing for him. How much God's doing for him. How much God is speaking to him. And if God's not living up to his end of the bargain, well then where are you, God? You know, there have been times in my life where I have gone through a pattern similar to this and I will ask some of the similar questions, but then it's like, man, who am I? Who are we to demand such things from God? And act as if, if our life is not peachy, that that means that God's not for us. That God's not around us. It's actually during these times where I believe God is actually the closest to us that He's ever been. And something happens at the end of Job's story that really jumped out at me. But before we get there, I want you to realize that in, verse, in, in chapter 38, the Lord finally comes and He challenges Job. He says He answered him from a whirlwind. It won't be up on the screen, but listen to this. Who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Brace yourself because I have some questions for you and you must answer them. 
Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Do you know how its dimensions were determined and who did the surveying? What supports its foundations and who laid its cornerstone as the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who defined the boundaries of the sea as it burst from the womb and as I clothed it with clouds and thick darkness for I locked it behind barred gates limiting its shores. I said thus far and no further will you come. Here your proud waves must stop. Wow. Wow. You see, Job, I think, paints a picture of how we are a lot alike in the Western culture today in our church because we've made it more about us than we've made it about him. If things don't look a certain way, sound a certain way, if certain songs aren't sang, if, if the if the chairs aren't padded enough, if the children's ministry isn't fun enough for the kids, well then guess what? We're gone to the next shop. We've made it more about comfort than we have about us being in relationship with Christ. We've made it more about us than we've made it about Him. And that's what Job did. That's where Job was. Job was at a place where it was all about him. God, why aren't you doing this for me anymore? Why isn't the the olive oil just gushing out of the rock like it used to? Why isn't all of this happening? God, why aren't you listening to me when I cry out? Because it was all about him. But then Job had a revelation. And in Job 42, 1 through 6, it says this, Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do anything. And no one can stop you. You asked, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? It is I. And I was talking about things I knew nothing about. Things far too wonderful for me. This man of integrity had now become a man of humility. He gets to this place of humility. Verse 4, he continues, you said, listen and I will speak. I have some questions for you and you must answer them. Verse 5 is what I want to highlight. I had only heard about you before. But now I have seen you with my own eyes. I take back everything I said and I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. He said, I have only heard of you before. But now I see you with my own eyes. See, I believe that there are a lot of us that we've only heard about him. But we haven't really seen him with our own eyes. The word seen here in the original language means a couple of things and I want you to look at what it means to look at each other face meaning face to face and then there's this this curious one here to me that to have vision to have vision you see what Job was saying is is that I was more about religion than about relationship I just checked the boxes off of what I was supposed to be instead of being face-to-face with you, instead of being in relationship with you. I'd only heard about you, but now I have seen you. Now I'm in relationship with you. I've seen you with my own eyes. I've grabbed a hold of a vision of who you are, and it's changed everything. It has changed everything. Man, oh man, I have only heard about you before, but now I have seen you. You see, Job had only heard about God up to this point in his life, and therefore he had no vision of God and who he really was. You know, something else interesting about the last chapter of Job, in Job forty-two seventeen. Remember when he was crying out to God, he said, I've already been through my prime. Meaning which... I've lived the, 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 the best part of my life that I'm going to live. There's no way that I could have a better life than that. But look at what it says. Then he died, an old man who lived a long, full, 
life. A long, full life. That verse doesn't encompass his time from when we met him in Job 1.1 to Job 42. That verse tells about Job 42 and on. Jesus says that I have come to give you life and life to the what? To the full. Until he got a proper vision of God, there was no way that he could have a full life. You see, because the life that he had before was the life that he created for himself. And he said, man, that is a great life. I've lived my prime. And then he was crying out, God, why have you forsaken me? Now he's on this end, and guess what God does? He gives him double of everything that he had in the past. That's because God's vision for your life is always more than your own vision for your life. Some of you need to get out of the vision that you have for your life. Start getting a vision for who He is and what His vision is for your life because it is so much more than where you sit today. You know, James tells us that those that draw close to God, God will draw close to them. Could it be that you will not see the vision that God has for your life until you first grab a hold of a vision of who He is. You've got to get yourself to a place where you're face-to-face before Him, where you're in relationship with Him, and then He begins to give you the vision that He has for your life. Stop settling for the vision that you have created that you're able to accomplish on your own strength and think that that's good enough. While Job was wealthy, blameless man at the beginning of his story, he wasn't living a full life. And it wasn't until he grabbed a vision of who God was that he was able to truly live a full life. God's vision for his life. And here's the even crazier part. He never gets his vision of God until he goes through his season of lack. His season of turmoil. His season of hopelessness his season of depression if you will that's why James tells us to consider it all joy when you find yourselves going through various trials and tribulations because it's those things that produce something within us Instead of asking the question why when we're in the middle of those trials, we need to be asking the question what. Instead of putting the focus on us when we're in those trials, we need to put the focus on Him. You wonder why you're so miserable when you're during these seasons of life is because your total attention is on you. And when you're in a trial like that, you can't teach yourself anything. You just keep yourself locked in it. And until you get your eyes fixated on Him, and until you grab a hold of a vision of who He is, not what you've heard about, but what you've seen, that's when things change. Stop settling for only hearing about Him and get a vision of who He is. God had a vision for Job, but He didn't live it out until He grabbed a vision of God. Until we can get a vision of God, we will not see His vision for our life. That's point number one. Point number two is this. When we grab a hold of a vision of God, we begin to see things the way He sees them. Here's a good test to know if you're seeing clearly. if you're seeing things differently. What I mean by that is, is that when you find yourself in a situation that used to bring you stress, now you have peace. When you see somebody that's offended you, and instead of spite, you see forgiveness, you see love, that's when you begin to tell that now you've had a vision of who God is, and that you're living your life in view of that vision and you begin to see things the way that he sees them David is a great example of this if we go back to the Genesis of his story in 1 Samuel 16 verses 1 through 13 it says this now the Lord said to Samuel 
You have mourned long enough for Saul. I've rejected him as king of Israel. So fill your flask with olive oil and go to Bethlehem and find a man named Jesse who lives there, for I have selected one of his sons to be my king. But Samuel asked, how can I do that? If Saul hears about it, he won't kill me. I mean, he will kill me. Take a heifer with you, the Lord replied, and say that you have come to make a sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you which of his sons to anoint for me. Verse 4, so Samuel did as the Lord instructed. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town came trembling to meet him. What's wrong, they asked. Do you come in peace? Now, let me say, let me just stop right here because some of you might not be familiar with where we're at in the story. Israel has cried out for a king because they don't like the way that God's been doing things. They want to do things their way because they have sacrificed God's vision for their vision. And so now they want to grab a hold of everybody else's vision, which is to have a king. So they cry out for a king. Saul is said to have stood uh, head and shoulders above everybody else. Guess what? He looked the part. If you were to scan the crowd of the Israelites in that day, you would have said, man, Saul is the king. Because he just looked it. You ever seen somebody that just looks the part? I mean, they just look the part. Only one problem with Saul. He began his tenure as king absolutely fearing the Lord and he had a lot of success and man the people loved it but guess what he was of the crop of people that wanted their own vision instead of God's vision and so pride welded up inside of him and he began to do things the way he wanted to do them not the way that God wanted him to do them and when he did that that's when we get the famous verse obedience is better than sacrifice because he goes and he only does things up to a certain degree but he holds some things back for himself to please the people instead of pleasing God. So Saul gets to this place. Samuel approaches him and says, what have you done? Make a long story short. Samuel tells him, you're no longer going to be king any longer. There is somebody else that has grabbed the heart of God. He is a man after God's own heart. He is the one that will succeed you. And it won't be somebody from your family line. And he says, and, and Samuel told Saul, he was trying to leave. Saul was like in, 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 in this moment of, of panic. And so he reaches out for Samuel's robe. He pulls, it rips off. And Samuel says, today, as you have ripped my robe, God has ripped the kingdom from you. So that's where we find ourselves at. Now, one of the things that Saul was supposed to do was to kill the king of the place that he was attacking and he didn't do it. So Samuel, he went in there and he did something that was very gruesome. He killed him and then he chopped him up to pieces. Okay? So now that's why the people are in panic. I mean, like, Samuel's coming to town. Who's getting chopped up, right? I mean, that's what people are thinking. So Samuel's coming and they're all afraid. But he says, no, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. Yes, Samuel replied, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Purify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And Samuel performed the purification rite for Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice too. Now this would have been like a big barbecue is essentially what it was. They bring this, this heifer in, they are sacrificing it, and then they're going to have a meal, they're going to share it together, and it's going to be this great big thing. And then he goes on and he says, when they arrived, Samuel, uh, then Samuel performed the purification rite for Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Verse 6, when they arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab and thought, surely... This is the Lord's anointed. Here, 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 here's the thing. Notice this. Because as you'll read further in the story in your own time, is that notice that there's no mention of you being the next king. It just talks about anointing. Now back then, it could have been anointing to be a prophet. It could have been anointing to be the king. But it wasn't specified during this time. And that is the reason that there was no respect given towards David after this. Because if they were really, a, if Samuel came in and said, I have anointed you king of Israel, man, there would have been respect that would have been garnered. But we're going to read here shortly that that wasn't the case. It wouldn't have been for like 20 some odd years before he would assume the throne. Here's another piece of important information that we need to figure out here is that David is between the age of 10 to 15. Different scholars debate whether that is, but we know for sure it's somewhere between 10 and 15 years old. Hello, 
Can you imagine that? 10 to 15 years old. So the story continues that he looked at Eliab and he thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. And then look at what verse 7 says. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't... It's okay. See things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Guess what? That word see and look, it's the same word that was used in Job. That, that, that it means to have a vision. You see, that's what's awesome about God. And that's what should make all of us build some anticipation in this place today. Because God was in the business of taking the broke, busted, and disgusted and taking them and moving them into the people that He used to be absolute world changers and history makers. I mean, He even went as far as using a prostitute. He, he took the ones that were full of shame and He propped them up and He said, look, this is my chosen one. He took people that had no business being in the positions that they were. But he doesn't look at outward appearance. He looks at what's in the heart. He looks on the inside. He doesn't see the things that man sees. He sees the things that he sees. He doesn't have your vision for your life. He has his vision for your life. And then there's a roll call that happens. And so all the sons of Jesse go through the lineup. And it's not any one of them. And in verse 10, it says, In the same way, all seven of Jesse's sons were presented to Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen any of these. Then Samuel asked, Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse replied. They couldn't even mention his name for crying out loud. He's just the youngest. Which tells you the kind of regard and respect they even had for him. He was the runt of the litter, if you will. But he's out in the fields watching the sheep and goats. You know what that line tells you? He ain't worth nothing. You don't even want to look at him. He's not even good enough to be in our house. He's got to stay out in the field and in the sheep pen. Send for him at once, Samuel said. Can you imagine the shock? We will not sit down to eat until he arrives. So Jesse sent for him. He was dark and handsome with beautiful eyes. I have the majority of that description, except I'm not dark. Okay? Just kidding. At least my wife thinks so, right? And the Lord said, check this out. And the Lord said, this is the one. Anoint him. Anoint him. So as David stood there among his brothers, I mean, guys, just imagine this picture. The brothers are like in disbelief. The dad is just like, Samuel, you, you, you're making a mistake. This isn't the, I don't even know what you're anointing him for, but I'm going to tell you, he's a mistake. Samuel took the flask of olive oil he had brought and anointed David with the oil. And check this out. And the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. And we're getting to chapter 17. I'm telling you. That's just, hey, that's just confirmation that, that we're going in the right direction. Then Samuel returned to Ramah. It says that when Samuel anointed him, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. Wow, 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 wow. I promise you when I get to heaven, the first thing I'm doing is I'm going to the local movie tavern and I'm going to tell them, load up the reels because I want to watch some of these movies. Like, I want to see what this looked like. Now, check this out. You'll find out that the dad and the brothers still don't have any respect after this fact, which tells me that they might have been good people, but they had only heard about God. They had never seen God. There was something different about David. There was something different about him. Because 
Notice it says he was out in the fields watching the sheep. Now think about this. David was called for his great anointing when he was out keeping the sheep. David simply did his job and was faithful in the small things and what his father told him to do. See, David wasn't interested in a position or a title. He was just interested in doing the job that God had given to him in that moment of his life. We need to stop seeking certain positions, certain levels. Stop trying to promote ourselves in things that we think we need to be promoted in and just allow God to promote you. Allow God to move in you and through you. Be faithful with where you're at. Be where you're at and do it. Now look, there are several things that keeping the sheep did for, that, 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 that happened here. Keeping the sheep was a servant's job. So this tells us two things. One is that David's family, while they might not have been poor, they certainly weren't wealthy because they didn't have enough money to pay for a servant to keep their sheep. So they just gave the run of the litter the bad position and said, hey, you go out and you do that. You keep the sheep. So it was a servant's job. Uh, number two, keeping the sheep meant that you had time to think. I mean, he was out there in that field all the time, and he had time to think. David spent a lot of time looking over the sheep, and he also had a lot of time looking at the glory of God's creation and just beginning to meditate on that, dwell on that, fixate on that. Keeping the sheep took a special heart because sheep aren't the most intelligent animals. In fact, they're quite dumb. And you have to have patience with them. You have to be willing to keep them in line. Sometimes be stern, but sometimes be gentle. You've got to be able to be good with the hook and be able to grab them when they're going off the beaten path and pull them back in. It takes a special heart and it takes somebody that's willing to give them special care. Keeping the sheep meant that you had to trust God in the midst of danger. Because there were other animals that looked at sheep as being vulnerable and easy prey. And so David had lions and bears and wolves to contend with. And the sheep had to be protected. I want you to listen to this next one. David's years keeping the sheep were not waiting time. They were training time. They weren't waiting time. They were training time. Sometimes we complain about the places that God has us in instead of embracing that moment that we're in and to learn the things that He wants us to learn, to be trained in the things He wants us to be trained in. Because remember... His vision is different than your vision. And the way that He trains you for that vision is going to look different than the way you think it should look. But God is not a God who wastes time. He never wastes anything. So regardless of how you might feel, that I'm waiting, I'm waiting, maybe... He's waiting on you to step up and be faithful with what you have and where you're at. And there's some things that he wants to train you in. You see, David had the Holy Spirit come and rest on him, and it gave him the ability to see like God sees. I would have to imagine that probably Samuel took David off to the side after he anointed him, and he said, look, I need to teach you a lesson that God taught me through this process. And that is that God does not look on the outward appearance, but he looks at the heart. You see, when I came here, David, I was looking for the one who looked the part. You don't look the part now, but you are because of what's on the inside. Never forget that. Don't let anybody look at you any different because of how you look on the outside because they don't have a clue of what's on the inside. You see, you might be here today and you might be like, well, I don't look the part. I don't have the abilities. I'm not even in the right place, maybe, is what you're saying. 
And God wants to encourage you today. Stop looking at your outward appearance. And start grabbing a hold of a vision of who He is so that He can peer back into your own heart and He can begin to pull and mine those things out of your heart that He already placed there because remember... This vision that he's had for your life was there before you were even a thought in your mom and dad's mind. And he'll begin to open up the book and the pages will come to life and you'll begin to see a life that you never even dreamed about yourself because it's his plan. It's his vision. I believe this is what made David a man after God's own heart because he was so hungry to grab a hold of a vision of who God was so that he could be everything that God wanted him to be. That's why he was labeled as a man after God's own heart. That's why he was able to see things the way that God saw them. I mean, there's plenty of instances that we can look at. I mean, the time that he brought the Ark of the Covenant back and he was dancing undignified. And it was like people probably thought this guy was crazy. Some of them were like, man, it's my opportunity to be crazy. But he had his wife upstairs looking down at him saying, uh, no, sir, you don't act like that. And he says, hey, guess what? You're looking at outward appearance. I don't care what you think because God's not interested in what I look like on the outside. He's caring about what's going on in the inside. Because David had a way of seeing things the way that God saw him. And sometimes when you see things the way that God sees, people are going to look at you like you're crazy and like you don't have a clue when really you're the one that's dialed in and they're the ones that look foolish and ignorant How about when David faced Goliath as Christina comes back up? What's crazy about this is, is that if you read the story, David has now found himself in the palace, but not as king, just as a harp player for King Saul. I need you to think about that for a minute. I think David very well knew that on that day what he was anointed for, even though his family probably did not see it the same way that he saw it, he knew. And he still chooses to go serve the king that he's going to take the place of. There actually became actually a bond between Saul and David. and even a deeper one with Saul's son, Jonathan. So it tells us that there would be days where he would be in the palace uh, uh, assisting Saul, and then there'd be days that he was tending the sheep. And then one day, Jesse comes for him, says, hey, boy. I still don't think that he called him by his name. Hey, boy, you need to go take lunch to your brothers that are out on the battlefield. Now, I don't know about you, but if I just saw my son anointed king and I knew that that's what it was for, he certainly ain't going to be the waiter uh, driver. See what I'm saying? Or Uber Eats or Grubhub, whichever one you use. So he gets out on the battlefield and he starts asking questions because there's something that doesn't make sense to David. He looks at the, at the situation and it's just like, well, wait a minute, what's the, what's the big deal here? And can you, let's think about it, how old he was. I mean, by this time, he's probably between 15 and 20. Let's just say that. Between 15 and 20, and he's going out asking all these, these, these soldiers, what's the big deal? Like, 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 what's the big deal? They're looking at him like, who in the world do you think you are? So they get through this whole thing. His brothers get mad at him. He finally makes it to Saul. And this is what he tells him in verse 32 in 1 Samuel 17. I love it. Don't worry about this Philistine. I'll go fight him.
Saul had thousands of soldiers. And not one of them came and said that. Only one. And he wasn't even a soldier. Named David. Why? Because everybody else saw with their own eyes. David was the only one that could see what God saw. I think if, if, if we could really like leap into what David saw, it was almost as if like Saul, I mean, uh, what, what, what David saw, not Saul, Saul, S-A-W, sorry, that's where I got. Okay, back. And David probably looked at Goliath as like, like this big. Like he's not nine or ten feet tall, he's like this big. It's like a little green army man, let's just knock him over. Like, what's the big deal? Let's, let's, let's get after it. So that's what David does. He goes, Saul says, don't be ridiculous. There's no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You're only a boy. And he's been a man of war since his youth. But David persisted. You see, when we see things the way that God sees, we persist. That's another way that you can determine whether or not you're seeing the way that God sees. Because when you see on your own natural ability, the first ounce of opposition that you get, you just shut down. Okay, I'm going to walk away. Thanks, Saul. I was crazy for thinking that. There's no way that I could do this. All right, bye. But it wasn't because he saw the way that God saw. And he said, no, this is my fight. And we're taking him down. And so he persisted. I've been taking care of my father's sheep and goats. When a lion or a bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club and rescue the lamb from its mouth. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and club it to death. I have done this to both lions and bears, and I'll do it to this pagan Philistine too, for he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and bear will rescue me from this Philistine. See, because David had already seen God in a way that nobody else had seen him. Because David had grabbed a hold of a vision of who God was. And because of that, now David is beginning to see the vision that God has for his life. Now he has the Holy Spirit that's rested on him. And he doesn't see Goliath as a threat. Because he understands that the God I serve is the only God. And he can defeat what's in front of me. Now check this out. Further down, now David's before Goliath. And this is in verse 45 through 47. David replied to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, spear, and javelin. And notice that. That's all natural things, right? But I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. He said, Goliath, all you got is in the natural. You don't even understand what I got. You're going to get hit so hard, you don't even know what's coming. Because he's got something supernatural. Today the Lord will conquer you. And I will kill you and cut off your head. And then I'll give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and wild animals and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. Notice something about David too. This is what I love about him. Notice that what he says is he says today, he doesn't say today, David is going to conquer you. And I'm going to kill you and I'm going to cut off your head and then I'll give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and wild animals and the whole world will know that there is a David in Israel. Nope, that's not what he said. Because David understands that it's not him that's about to defeat Goliath, but it's the God that's resting on him and in him that is about to defeat Goliath. In verse 47, And everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people, but not with sword or spear. This is the Lord's battle, and he will give you to us. This is what I felt. I felt that there are some of you here today 
that you've had a vision for your life at one time. And that vision was from God. I'm talking about like there are some things that maybe you have never told anybody else because you're kind of afraid to tell them because they might think that you're crazy. Because here's the thing. I don't believe anybody was put here on this earth just to be average. To just go through the motions. You were created on purpose for a purpose. But what maybe has happened is that there's a Goliath that has appeared in your life. That has begun to cloud your vision. To stand in the way of your vision. And because of Goliath standing before you, you're like one of the soldiers on the battlefield and you're paralyzed in fear. Because all you can see is what's in the natural. All you can see is what's not going your way. All you can see is what door's not being opened. All you can see is what is not happening. Because you've lost vision. You no longer have God's vision before you to see past the problems and the, and the trials that you face because Goliath stands between you and that vision. And you've lost your hope. You've lost your way. You've lost the ability to see the way that God sees. And you've lost the ability to see the God who's really on the inside of you. I mean, do you realize that if you believe in who He is today, that the same Spirit that rose Him out of the grave lives in you? Which means that you're able and, and, and to do anything? Anything is possible! Anything is possible, but we have lost sight of that. And for far too long, we've been trying to fight Goliath in our own means, in our own natural abilities, and we can't seem to defeat him because it'll never work. I believe that some of you need to stand up today. You need to stare your Goliath eyeball to eyeball and you need to say you come to me with sword spear and javelin but today I have reclaimed my vision of God I've reclaimed the vision that he's had on my life and I'm coming to you today and I'm telling you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies the God of armies of Israel whom you have defied today the Lord will conquer you stop telling yourself that you can conquer it because you can't you gotta have him you gotta have him move in you and through you and you gotta say today the Lord is gonna conquer you Goliath and I will kill you and I will cut your head off and then I will give the dead bodies of everything that comes behind you Goliath that tries to take my life out and all the wild animals will take them and the whole world will know that there is a God in this life there is a God that reigns supreme in my life and everyone assembled around me that's in my sphere of influences will begin to understand that the Lord rescues those who he has chosen and who are his people but not with sword and spirit because this battle is the Lord's battle. Some of y'all need to declare that over your own life. Stop living a life where you're cowering down. Stop living a life where you just keep putting your head in the sand because you don't want to face reality. Because you say you don't want to face reality because you're not leaning into the presence of God. You're leaning into your own ability. It is time to wake up. The time is short. We don't have time as a luxury anymore. We've got to start standing up and taking our rightful positions and standing in the power that God has for us and to start moving in the vision that He has for our lives because we've got a dying and hurting world that's beyond these four walls that needs to see some people rise up and they need to see some Goliaths come down because they need hope in their life. But if all they see is a church who's a wimpy church, yeah. they don't want to be involved with that. They don't see that there's a need to be involved with it. But when they start seeing us stand up and they start seeing us say, this is not my battle, this is the Lord's battle. When they start seeing Goliaths coming down, they will begin 
to see God the way that you see Him. They will start to say, I need what you've got. I've got to have what you have. And you will begin to see God move in ways that you've never seen Him move before. I'm telling you today, Goliath must come down. He doesn't have a choice today when you stand up and you stand in your rightful position as a son and daughter of the one true living King. Who's got a Goliath? Who's got a Goliath? Who's got one? Come on. Come on. Who's ready to stand and make a declaration to that thing which stands in front of you?